So, guess what the topic is tonight? Five Spiritual Faculties, Part Four. (laughs) Just goes on and on for the rest of our practice lives. And we could take any one of these lists and do the exact same thing. And it would be just as it is. So, um, because it's part four and we're, we're going down the journey, we've got some of the, the groundwork laid. thought we'd have some fun tonight and, and play a little bit. Um, for me, when I came to practice, my life was in a pretty difficult situation. Uh, started when I was 17, meditating. So, the body was really difficult for a variety of reasons. Yes, at the age of 17, car accident. Uh, and the mind and heart were in even worse shape. So I came to practice in a pretty serious way. In fact, I was desperate. And I think because I came to practice in a serious way and with some desperation, the spirit of play and lightness has been imperative in my own practice. And now it comes out in the teaching uh, in different ways. And so uh, those of you that know me well know that my uh, original training long before I started teaching Dharma was as a classroom teacher. I thought I was going to be a kindergarten teacher for the rest of my life. Life took a few turns. Here I am. And so uh, I thought I'd bring a prop. I teach a lot with props and visuals and things uh, in my own community of mountain stream meditation, smaller communities I serve there. So I know that if you're sitting in the back, you can't see this, but I'll leave it up. And you can come up and visit it and see it in the next day. Because for me, when I was learning all of these lists in the tradition, Um, my mind doesn't really work in lists. I understand that the Buddha was a master list maker, and I completely respect that, but it's not the way my mind works. So it took me about twice as long to learn the teachings than if somebody had just given me a handout or provided a prop. So for those of you who are like me, out of compassion, a prop. So here's what this is. Uh, We've talked about several kind of metaphors for the five spiritual faculties. Mary Grace um, began our journey with kind of moving through them linearly um, with the faith, the energy, the mindfulness, the concentration, and the wisdom. And then she also talked about the importance of the balancing factors. Gil, last night, offered the pyramid model, which is also very helpful. Yet another model from the tradition is uh, a metaphor of, believe it or not, what this represents is a team of horses pulling a cart. So last night, Gil was talking about how everything is miraculous. And I know from talking to you today that that touched some of you, and, and it touched me. So I'm going to ask you to use your miraculous powers to manifest this as the image of five horses and a cart. Can you do it? (laughs) It's okay if you can't do it. But if you can do it, then it's helpful. If it's not helpful, don't worry about it. So because you can't see the labels on the top, um, I will say that mindfulness is the lead horse. You can see how there's a cup out in front. And then there's two sets of cups. So then there's a team of horses called energy and concentration. And a team of horses called faith and wisdom. And they are pulling a cart. And this image has always been really helpful for me. I can feel it viscerally in certain ways. But at some point when I was teaching, I thought to myself, well, I wonder what the cart is. Each of these horses represents a quality of the five spiritual faculties. I did some research. I didn't really come up with anything. So I just thought, okay, I'll look at my own direct experience. What does the cart represent? And what I came up with is that these five horses, these five spiritual faculties, are pulling me. They're pulling the cart of self. So this is our little wagon of self here. 
And the way that I came up with a picture of water is kind of just thinking about how, oh, well, so if there's a team of horses and it's pulling me along, it's pulling the cart of self along, then as they become more and more mature and more and more powerful, what happens to the cart of self? And then I thought, oh, the cart of self is not a cart, it's a water pitcher. And as the practice progresses, it starts to pour out. And so we lose all of the extra that we don't need in the selfing. And we're just left with this vessel um, that can manifest all of the awakened qualities, an empty vessel pregnant with potential. So something uh, special happened for me uh, just an hour ago. It was a surprise. And I discovered earlier today uh, from, from somebody that uh, one of my old, originally actually was a colleague, and then uh, became a friend and a mentor, and now uh, in my own heart is an esteemed elder, was going to be close by. And it was somebody that I spent a great deal of time with, teaching when I was in my mid-20s to mid-30s and as somebody that I haven't seen in the last six years in person. We've stayed in touch, um, but not in person due to circumstances. And that somebody is Ajahn Pasano. And so some of you know who Ajahn Pasano is. He's now one of the most... uh, Uh, esteemed and and venerated and senior Western monastics in the Thai forest tradition. When I first met him when I was 26 years old, we were both younger, and, uh, you know, we've we've both grown in these years. Uh, And so he was just passing through just really, really briefly, and I I had no idea if it was going to actually work out to connect with him, and it did. So I had tea with him just an hour ago. We were making jokes about what would happen if I didn't show up for the Dharma talk. (laughs) So I wonder if anybody's not shown up for the Dharma talk. So uh, he said, you know, what are you doing down here? Because these days uh, I live in the Sierra foothills. And I said, oh, I'm down here teaching a retreat with uh, Mary Grace and John and Gil. And he said, oh, you know, you're... you're, uh, you're teaching with some luminaries. And I said, yes, I am. <laughs> you know, he kind of raised me in the Dharma. He was one of the people that raised me in the Dharma. He and Ajahn Amaro, who were co-abbots at Abayagiri Monastery uh, in Mendocino. And Abayagiri means fearless mountain. And if you've been up there, that mountain that monastery is on, you've got to be fearless to be on that mountain. Actually, just last night, one of the monastics there had a really amazing encounter, intimate encounter with a mountain lion and its cub. So you got to be fearless to be on that mountain, Abayagiri Monastery, fearless mountain. So what are you doing down here? I'm down here teaching. What do you, you know, what's the retreat? Oh, we're teaching on the five spiritual faculties. And so somebody that was there, uh, who's been around here, who's not on the retreat uh, uh, staff, kind of uh, gave a bit of a synopsis of what's been happening here so Ajahn Pasano could think of us and send his blessings. They actually gave a blow-by-blow account of Gil's talk last night. (laughs) And Ajahn Pasano smiled, and he said, well, so what are you teaching on? I said, oh, the same thing, (laughs) spiritual faculties. And I told him about the, um, I said, I'm going to use the analogy, this is why I'm telling you this, I'm going to use the analogy of the horses in the cart. And, uh, and then I thought to myself, oh, well, I made up that the cart's a cart of self, so I should ask him if he has some doctoral information that I don't have. Do you know what the cart represents in this analogy from the Buddha, um, as offered by Ayakema, who I'll introduce you to in a minute. And he thought about it for a minute, and then he just looked at me and said, you know... He said, my tradition, the Thai Force tradition, a lot of it, we just make it up. (laughs) 
and we all kind of had a good laugh about that. And, and for me, my, my lineage uh, is the Thai force tradition and the Eastern and Western manifestations. And we, we kind of had a good laugh about that. He just said, yeah, you know, we just make it up. It's what works. And so that's what I want to share with you. It's what works. And we really have the opportunity to listen deeply and look and see for ourselves what works. And if it's not working, and it's causing a tremendous amount of struggle in the mind and in the heart, we put it down and we say, not helpful. No extra drama, no big deal. So here's the analogy from Ayakema. So who's Ayakema? Uh, again, uh, the lineage. She passed away some time ago now. Um, but she's a real inspiration for me. She was actually the first Western woman that was fully ordained uh, as a nun, or a bhikkhuni, it's called. And she's a German-born. And she lived a full life as a mother and a householder and a world traveler. She knew all of the aspects of life before she was ordained. And then she spent the later years in her life uh, in deep, deep monastic practice. And she's a very powerful teacher. So I've been studying her some extra this last year or so. I'm just being re-inspired. She said, the Buddha compared the five spiritual faculties to a team of horses with one lead horse and two pairs that are pulling a wagon. The lead horse can go as fast or slow as it likes, and the others have to fall into step with it. The pairs have to be in balance with each other. Otherwise, if one goes faster than the other, the wagon will topple. So this is our practice. And we're not so oriented these days, most of us, to horses and carts. But a lot of us have vehicles, yes. Taking a break from them this week, which is nice. And our cars get out of alignment. And we know what that feels like. You know, when one wheel starts pulling more than the other, and it's like, eh, eh. A little, you know, a lot of devotion, a lot of conviction. Don't really know what the heck is happening. It's like, oh, I haven't, the car is out of alignment on the side of faith. You know, the horse is pulling this way, for example. It's interesting, for most of my adult life, um, I've lived in the country, in West Marin, a lot of the time, and, and now up in the Sierra foothills. And so I've lived on dirt roads. These days, I live on quite a dirt road. You go up a hill, you go down a very, very, very steep hill, and then you veer to the left, go up another one, and there's my house. Uh, it's a little tricky when it snows. It snows where I live occasionally. I actually don't drive it when it snows. Came from the Bay Area, haven't figured that out yet. <laughs> well, I lived up there for a few years. But wow, when things are a really, really steep dirt road, you can very much feel when the car's out of alignment. You know? And there's a way that, that being here, it's like we're on this dirt road. And sometimes it's gentle and sometimes it's steep. And it really gives us the opportunity to feel viscerally uh, the dukkha and the cessation of dukkha. So what is dukkha? Uh, dukkha is the Pali word for that's often translated as unsatisfactoriness or sometimes uh, stress or sometimes suffering. It's something we all experience being human beings living a life. But when we look at the Pali word for dukkha, a translation of it is more accurately that you have a wheel and the axle and the wheel is a little bit off. You know, so the wheel's going tutunk, 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 or it's a little out of alignment, and we can just feel. I know you've felt it a thousand times here, that not quite right feeling. Yeah. 
just not quite right. So something's out of alignment. And these practices, all of them, allow us to see, oh, I need an alignment. And oh, I can be my own mechanic. And oh, there's assistance there if I need it. So the mind gets out of alignment as well and different things pull different ways. One of the ways that I look at that is that the mind gets colored by the defilements. So what are the defilements? Fundamentally, the defilements of mind, that which colors the natural clarity of mind, is the, the energetics of greed or wanting, the energetics of aversion or not wanting, and the energetics of delusion, manifest as confusion. I don't know. And not that I don't know that is actually like, wow, I don't know. But the, I don't know, what should I do? That, can you feel a difference in the energetic? Very different. So the mind gets out of alignment and it's almost as if the natural clarity and purity of the mind get clouded over. And an analogy that I like for that is the analogy of wearing colored glasses. Uh, A lot of masters use this analogy. And so we can really look and see, even just now, you know, and it's, it's great that we have these lenses now that are, you know, different progressive lenses and sometimes they go dark and sometimes they go light when we go inside and outside. We can use all of that as metaphors because sometimes the colored glasses are just a little bit wanting something. Not a lot. It'd be easy to miss. Just a little bit. Oh. Oh. You know? I'm wanting you to be interested just a little bit. True confessions. (laughs) You know, it's true. But I can also understand that why there's a little bit of that wanting you to be interested is actually just because I care about your practice unfolding in a way that supports your awakening. That's something that I really learned to track in my own practice when there is a little bit of color in the lens, you know, some wanting or not wanting, the mind's a little out of alignment. It's like, oh, is there a root of caring there? Is there some caring that's actually feeling this, you know, that's not so helpful. I'm not in charge of whether you're interested or not. It has nothing to do with me. We're all doing the best we can. But, oh, I can feel the caring that's feeling it. So that's something I check when there's a slight struggle in the mind. Like, oh, is there a root of caring? And the reason that I'm mentioning that is that in particular, what I want to look at a little bit more with you tonight and just reflect on a little bit more is the way that these qualities of heart, the divine abodes, are in relationship with the five spiritual faculties. And they're just uh, a fundamental part of our inherent nature when we're not startled or angry or confused. Friendliness, compassion, joy, and equanimity are available. We clear the clouds and they shine forth. So to take a look at that relationship, So I already introduced you to Ayakema, Venerable Ayakema. And this reflection is for those of you that are interested in study, is informed by two other teachers, a study that I've been doing recently. And one of them is the late Edward Kanza, one of the great translators of the last generation. And the other is one of the great translators, and Buddhist activists of our time, Bhikkhu Bodhi. So we'll take a look at some of these and see how they weave together with the qualities of heart. And of course, you'll continue reflecting on your own. So we'll start with energy, 
virya in the Pali. And we've been talking about energy. We've been using some synonyms. Uh, Again, I really want to encourage us to use the language that works for us internally. So, for example, we've been mentioning that we're well aware that for some of us here, the word faith is highly charged. And there's been pain uh, associated with that word. You would want to retranslate that word into a word that allows you back in to an experience of the human heart that's available. So energy, we might talk about vigor. We've talked about vitality. Uh, Effort, perseverance, enthusiasm is a cousin to this energy. So Edward Kanza commenting on a sutta from the Buddha. Where can the faculty of energy be seen at its best? The answer, in the four right efforts. So this is one of the factors of the Eightfold Path. Or the how do we wake up? How do we support cessation of that which isn't helpful and experience peace? From Bhikkhu Bodhi, energy, the mental factor behind right effort, can appear in either wholesome or unwholesome forms. The same factor fuels desire, aggression, violence, and ambition on one hand, and generosity, self-discipline, kindness, concentration, and understanding on the other. So we're already weaving beyond just this team of horses here of energy and concentration, the first team of horses, and we're already pointing to the relationship between mindful awareness and energy. Because what we start to understand as we continue practicing is that energy and awareness themselves need to be balanced. And when they're not balanced, when there's a leap in awareness or a leap in energy, and they're no longer balanced, especially if the energy grows stronger than the awareness, what happens is that that energy then manifests in available habit patterns. And those available habit patterns may be skillful, but just as likely they're unskillful. So it's really important place to be in relationship with those two things, the way that they work together. And especially as we're practicing deeply and there can be these profound uh, growth spurts in one of the factors. You're just minding your own business and all of a sudden it's like, oh, there's so much energy available. All right, so how do I be in relationship with this? How do I manifest this skillfully in relationship to the other horses? So the team of horses, energy, concentration. From Edward Kanza. In Buddhist psychology, concentration occurs twice. Number one, as a factor essential to all thought. Huh. How many of you have been spending time trying to get rid of your thoughts so you can concentrate? (laughs) So factor essential to all thought. Number two, as a special, rather rare virtue. In its simplest form, concentration is the narrowing of the field of attention in a manner and for a time determined by the will. The mind is made one-pointed, does not waver, does not scatter itself, and it becomes steady like the flame of a lamp in the absence of wind. While I was on retreat here myself the last two weeks before we started this journey this week together, the weather was very similar to how it's been here. Just blow all day, the wind, blow and blow and blow and blow. And then at night, often, the way it often has at night here, it settles down. And it's like, it almost feels to me like the weather is cycling right now. 
in not so dissimilar way as our minds sometimes do. The minds are just filled with gusts and blusters of all kinds of mental activity. It's like, whoa, I'm in a wind tunnel of mental activity here. (laughs) I feel like I'm getting blown away. And then all of a sudden, it settles. The flame of a lamp in the absence of wind, the flame of our hearts, without everything that's blowing around it, that covers it up, that makes us lose sight of what's really, really there. So then we have faith and wisdom the next two sets of horses and how do they work together. So this is just a wonderful quote from Ayakema about one way they work together. But I think the most important inquiry is for us moment by moment, how do they work together? She said, faith without wisdom while being a strong faculty is yet unable to find the right direction. We say, faith can move mountains, but being blind, faith doesn't know which mountains need moving. How many times have we just pushed around something inside ourselves, inside of our life, if I just move this problem over here, then I'll be okay, but we've actually missed the fact that it's not the problem. It's the relationship to what's going on that needs to be transformed. So she continues, however, coupled with wisdom, there is enormous potential. The reason for such strength is that the heart and the mind are brought into harmony. You know what that feels like. I know you do. In moments? The mind can have wisdom and the heart can have faith. When the heart and the mind are brought to a point of coexistence, of no separation, the power which develops is far greater than just one plus one equals two. It's more like two to the power of two. And in a way, that's the mystery of it doesn't matter if we know conceptually how that works. It's like, can we surrender to the potential of that process? And the mind and the heart are brought into harmony. You know, in Thailand, uh, in the Thai language, it's chitta, mind, my mind. It's here. It's here in the heart. It's not separate. And so we have faith. And I love the translation that Mary Grace used of the sada, placing the heart upon. How many times have you placed the heart upon this retreat? Just surrendered the heart upon. And I love it that it doesn't say upon what. It actually deletes the object. It deletes the thing that we look for as something. It just says to place. So again, the language, right? faith. We've been using conviction, confidence. Uh, another word that really resonates for me that's a less traditional translation of this faculty of faith is trust. That was something I could really begin to connect with. And I want to reiterate what has been said before, but it feels important. The Buddha was not encouraging blind faith. That is not what this journey is about. He was encouraging verified faith and abiding faith. That the whole invitation of this path and so much of why when I was very, very young in my late teens and uh, incredibly rebellious stage of life, I'm sure I'm not the only one that was that way in the late teens. And to have the 
teachers, the folks up in front, just be saying over and over, this is a practice about where we look and see for ourselves, was what allowed me to enter the doorway of this practice. It's really important. I came again. Faith as a quality in the heart has such great value because it's connected with love. We can only have faith in something or someone we love. So when we look at the loving kindness practice, for example, and perhaps this has been mentioned in one of the loving kindness periods, but we have these near misses and far misses in the practice. This is part of what I was talking about when I was leading the metta a few days ago. And we'll be doing the practice at a cultivation level. Because, of course, the metta is available when we're not startled or angry or confused. As are all of these faculties. And we train. So we're cultivating. We create the space of friendliness. And we keep inclining the mind that way, the intentional phrases of well-wishing. And then all of a sudden, whoosh, out of nowhere, I'm feeling pretty warm and friendly. And all of a sudden, the heart closes. It becomes a stone. It's filled with fear or anxiety or you know, anger or something. And you go, did I do it wrong? What just happened? It's not uncommon that there'll be cycles of that. And it's the same in the insight practice. Sitting here, minding our own business, coming back to the breath for the 50,000th time, and all of a sudden something just comes in and almost knocks us right off. This is the opening of the possibility of what we sometimes call purification. That actually in the midst of the metta practice, there's a field of friendliness in which Everything which we would not label metta is welcome to come, to visit, to be known. I see you, Mara. And to also just let it live its life without interference and pass away. It doesn't matter what we don't struggle with. You follow? There's like a triple negative in there. Which is why I like it. It's like it doesn't matter what we don't struggle with. Double negative. That means everything's available to be a teacher and everything is a potential doorway to freedom. So some of the near misses which can weaken our faith, our trust in the process. With the metta practice, uh, one of them is selfish affection. Right? So the glasses get put on again. We're wishing well, we're wishing well, and all of a sudden it's like, yeah, I'm wishing well, friendliness towards you, but only if you do how I need it to be in order for it to all be okay. Can you do that? And the muse is just minding its own business. So the selfish affection is a near miss. It has an agenda. There's a hook there. And it actually weakens our trust in the process because now we're controlling There's less surrender and there's more control. Um, The cart of self here, so this is a water pitcher, and right now it's about half full or half empty, depending on what your orientation of mind is. And that seems about perfect for the point we're in in the retreat. If we get caught in believing these near misses, it starts to fill up with some more water, some more solid, separate me, my agenda, my controlling, how it needs to be, blah, blah, blah. It's very real, it's very compelling. Far opposite are when we have the, the glasses glued to our face and they're filled with anger and ill will, hatred and aversion. And it's really hard to have faith at that point, to have trust because the love has fallen way into the background. We may have even lost touch with it for a moment. One of my favorite um, kind of faith meta equanimity phrases that I don't just use in formal meditation practice, but I use it a lot living a life practice. 
And it goes like this. May I trust in the unfolding. May I trust in the unfolding. And there was a period of a couple of years where I was really working with some contractions of self, you know, yet another layer. And I would say that line more than multiple times a day. I say it a lot. Every time I noticed a hook, a cot, a leaning forward, just like the, the water pitcher was filling up and overflowing with me as the main event on a planet of seven billion. It's like, <laughs> may I trust in the unfolding? So you may like that one, you may have your own. But to not just use it on the cushion. To really, really keep awareness about, you know, Mary Grace was mentioning, like, oh, how are the faculties, which ones, she didn't put it this way, but how I would put it is, which ones are lit up right now? Which ones just feel clouded in darkness, unavailable, they're offline? How do I hook back in? And I trust in the unfolding. So inevitably, uh, with the trust, the conviction, the faith, we're working with cycles of doubt, and many of you have. And I want to share how much respect I have for those of you who've come in to visit and said, hey, in the last day or so, Really, there's been a lot of doubt, and often it's been a multiple hindrance attack of like doubt and sleepiness or doubt and restlessness or doubt and something. And, and several of you have said, yeah, and you know, I, I even, you've said it to me, you know, like I've even had the thought, I want to go home. That's like, yeah, I hear you. Because sometimes the way we talk about doubt is if we don't see it, if we're unable to label it, as doubt. It's a car keys in hand energy. (laughs) It can really derail us. So this is a quote that I really like about this process from a founding teacher here, James Barras. He says, practice is difficult without faith. The doubting mind feels very alone, disconnected, and despairing. The voice of doubt says, Everyone else is meditating the right way, and I don't know what I'm doing. This is just a waste of time. I'll never be a good meditator. Watch out for the words never and always in the mind. They're sticky. Then he continues. I remember one early retreat when thoughts like those kept arising in my mind. My doubts about myself and the practice were so overwhelming that I was ready to give up and leave. James Barris. You know, I know a lot of you know him or have heard him online. We all go through this. And then he continues. As with all states of mind, the wave of doubt eventually passed. Seeing the impermanence of the mind state and the subsequent vigor, energy, that replaced it gave me the courage to continue. So it's just this organic process of him starting to notice, oh, he took refuge in impermanence. This too shall pass. It's a great place to take refuge at times. Uh, And then out of that release, energy arose. And then out of that energy, heart started to come back, trust started to come back, Uh, courage arose. Deep bows of respect for your courage. It takes courage to be here, I know. So with all of this, we need a lot of compassion to work with the difficulties, right? This second divine abode. And I was realizing that the other day when I was leading Metta, I said a a little line and I wanted to give you the backstory on it because I could feel with a few of you there was a, a little bit of a response. Perhaps it resonated for a few of you. And the line that I said was, I love you, keep going. So there's a little backstory on that. It's very much about compassion. This connects back with Ajahn Pasno as well. So uh, the reason that Ajahn Pasno, this esteemed elder uh, monk, uh, started out for me as a colleague, 
uh, was because for about a decade I had the privilege and the pleasure of being the director and the teacher for the family and teen program here at Spirit Rock. And so I met Ajahn Amaro and Ajahn Pasano originally uh, teaching these retreats for families that happen here every year. And then we'd also teach a teen retreat at a Bayagiri monastery every year. So I was in this very um, interesting position of being an extremely young laywoman who was actually in charge of the curriculum and the teaching coordination of the event. Gil also taught that with me for many years and continues the tradition. Thank you, Gil. So we'd have a group of about 125 people ages 5 to 80 here. And uh, so I would be needing to say things to Ajahn Pasana or Ajahn Amaro like, okay, I said to Ajahn Amaro, can you lead a metta meditation today? I think we need a little more kindness with the kids and the community. Why don't you do that? And it was very accommodating. I said to Ajahn Pasano, I think we're needing to bring some patience into the foreground and the practice in our community. Can you tell a story about that this morning? Oh, and by the way, it needs to be five minutes or less. They have short attention spans. <laughs> it's very accommodating. So because of the unusual circumstances of this highly diverse retreat, the relationship that developed between us was um, unusual uh, and very special, I know now in retrospect. I didn't really know it at the time. So, I Love You Keep Going is connected with our annual teen retreats. And a few years back, before I retired from teaching that retreat, and yeah, I guess I'm old enough to retire from something now. <laughs> Taught it for 10 years. Uh, I came to teach it and, and coordinate it, and, and there was a new staff on the retreat. Twelve people show up at our New Year's teen retreat every year to volunteer their time for six or seven days to support youth ages 15 to 19 to develop these tools and to wake up. I really respect them. And so a new staff showed up, and they were from the Dharma Punks community. And so one of the cultural pieces of the many of people in the Dharma Punks community against the stream is that they have a lot of tattoos. And so we were sitting in our staff circle, and I was beginning the training for them, and he was sitting right next to me, and I looked down, and I, I saw that he had a lot of tattoos, and you know, the teens like that. It's cool. Uh, and, and I looked down, and he had tattoos on the palms of his hands. And they were in beautiful cursive. And what they said was this, I love you, keep going. And I kind of teared up. I was like, wow, I don't have a single tattoo. Uh, but if I did, <laughs> that would be what I'd want. Here's the beautiful thing. I don't have a single tattoo, but I have the privilege of having two hands. And if you also have the privilege of having two hands, you can just look down at your hands right now. And I do this sometimes when things are difficult in the practice. I just look down at my two hands, so precious, and I just see the cursive. I love you, keep going. It's like there's a pep talk everywhere. There's a wake up call everywhere. We only need eyes to see. And the Dhamma is everywhere. The teachings are constant. We just need to be available. So another piece to this love connected with faith is tolerance and tolerance in the face of difference the ability to be able to be open and aware and explore our differences as well as our similarities so I found this wonderful quote from Edward Conza one word about tolerance without which faith remains raw and unsure of itself it is a perpetual trial to our faith that we should constantly meet with people who believe differently. Right. So wisdom. We're now at the second set of team of horses 
And at this point, mindfulness, which is the lead horse, is pulling the cart really quickly. We have some momentum going. And I'm actually, I'm still waiting for the opportunity, it hasn't happened yet, to offer this teaching outside uh, and, and rig something together with the cups and the horses and the cart so that I can pull it along really fast and the water will actually start to slosh out. I haven't had that opportunity yet. (laughs) But the mindfulness is becoming more and more mature. And the glasses are clearing out. The awareness is starting to shine in its own awake purity that is available. So I wanted to reflect a little bit about the quality of equanimity which arises with this wisdom as a part of this wisdom, and particularly when we start to deepen not our conceptual understanding, but our direct experience understanding of the three characteristics of existence, which are that everything is changing, the unsatisfactory nature of conditioned things, and the impersonal nature of that which changes. So a really simple way of putting these things uh, that I like to say is this. Everything changes. When we hold on, it hurts. It's not personal. Three characteristics. And again, these are to be experienced directly. If you ask a five-year-old, does everything change? They say, yeah, I got my hair cut last week. We know it changes. And then we come here and we go... it changes and keeps changing. So there's a traditional image of equanimity as a tree. And I like that image because it's grounded and spacious. And I always think of this tree as being a great grandmother tree. And she's seen many seasons, many things come and go. And, you know, the winds and the rains and the sun and the squirrels that have a nest there and the branches that have broken off and the moss and the whole life of it, this tree has experienced. And, you know, the tree is in in full maturity and full canopy. You could say it's a summer tree. Ajahn Sutito, who is a uh, colleague and friend and and just uh, an elder in the monastic sangha with Ajahn Pasana, talks about with the equanimity in, in our direct practice, staying with the roots instead of getting caught up in the flutter of the leaves. You know, so the flutter of the leaves might be obsessing with thoughts or emotions or getting all caught up in me and it's just all fluttering around and it's so fascinating and, and you know, entertaining and active and it's all just fluttering around. He says, go to the roots, feel the roots. Even as I say that, I'm remembering my root teacher <laughs> This is years and years ago. I haven't thought about this in a long time. At one point in my practice, a long time ago, he said to me, Heather, he said, okay, your practice, you're like a pole. <laughs> and, you know, you've got your pole now, and it's, it's rooted in the ground. The pole is in the ground. But that pole, it's just knocking back and forth and knocking back and forth. It's not uprooting itself, but it's sure, there's a sure a lot of activity still there. He's like, you need to really ground that pole more. You know, you got a good start. Keep going. That was his version of, I love you, keep going. And he's a monastic, so you just say, you know, dig that pole deeper. I love you, keep going. <laughs> so my working definition of equanimity is this. Now, this doesn't come from the tradition, it just comes from my own experience. It has five qualities. Equanimity is the balance of the non-reactive mind and heart that's grounded in wisdom, supports a deep caring, 
and leads to an appropriate response. So we've got balance, non-reactivity, wisdom, caring, and an appropriate response. It's not passive, it's not indifferent. If I was going to add a sixth element, it would be spacious, but it feels like already a run-on sentence. So, you know, parentheses, spacious. When equanimity out of the wisdom faculty becomes mature, or we could say when the wisdom faculty out of the equanimity becomes mature, there are a few qualities that manifest. You may recognize some of them. One is what's called in the tradition the abandoning of fear and pain. Isn't that an amazing possibility? The abandoning of fear. And we have abandoned it in the moments. It can be more pervasive. More and more pervasive. So another way of talking about this is we stop shooting the second arrow. And I realized we hadn't talked about the second arrow here. And it's a great teaching. Either re-remind us or introduce it. I'll just say it really simply. Um, This is a teaching from the Buddha, which I'm going to retranslate into 2015 American speech. So the first arrow is basically life on life's terms. We all get hit by arrows. The aging, the illness, the not getting what we want, the getting what we don't want, you know, just basic garden variety dukkha, arrows. When that happens, out of deep, deep conditioning, that by the way, we do not need to take so personally. There's this tendency to shoot a second arrow. And in a way, we could just say the second arrow is the struggle with life on life's terms. We've all experienced it. And when the wisdom as a power grows and the equanimity matures, we do that less and less. The flip side of it is this quality that's called abandoning of delight. And you might think, oh dear, (laughs) I have so much difficulty in my life, I came here to see if I could experience joy. Please do. It's another one of the divine abodes. It's not cheating. It's an awakening state of mind and heart. But in this case, what's being referred to is not being attached to the deepening of clarity and insight in the practice. So an example of that, a simple example, is from the story that Gil told last night about the prisoner in San Quentin. Remember how he went through all the difficulty in solitary confinement, and then his mind finally, you know, against all odds, became still and clear. What was the next thing that happened? He got really excited, and the whole thing disappeared. It dissolved. That's what this is referring to that we don't need to get so excited that we actually lose the grounding of the deepening of the practice. That's all. So it actually becomes more and more profound and embodied and, you know, drink it in without the extra addiction. I call that one not getting high on our practice. So those are a couple of the qualities that start to emerge. Then we'll go to mindfulness, our lead horse here. So it was interesting sitting with Saida Utejaniya because Saida's definition of mindfulness or awareness is how it's often um, translated. He prefers to have it translated as awareness and Gil mentioned that last night. He actually says that the definition of awareness is the five spiritual faculties working together. So his fundamental definition of awareness is already quite mature. So in a way we're saying, yes, mindfulness is the lead horse, and actually it's all one, it's not separate. Another way of saying that is they're all in relationships so intimately that it's, this is what it is. 
This is from Bhikkhu Bodhi. The faculty of mindfulness which protects the mind from extremes and ensures that the members of each pair hold one another in a mutually restraining, mutually enriching tension. I love that. Because on one hand, we are saying, let's keep it simple. Let's have some restraint. Let's not follow every single craving that arises. It doesn't have to be the main event. And through that restraint, it can be mutually enriching. And that there's a tension there. But the tension doesn't have to include struggle. At the Metta Retreat in January that I'm part of the teaching team along with uh, Sylvia Borstein and Donald Rothberg and Larry Yang, um, our, our basic understanding where we're teaching from with that retreat is that even though the form that we're teaching, this heart practice, this loving kindness and the other divine abodes, it's a different form. You see that at the five o'clock teachings. That actually they're one. The mindfulness and the metta are one. A mature mindfulness has inherent shining forth of warmth and friendliness. Uh, And that a mature metta needs mindfulness wisdom, or it's not fully mature. I wanted to mention specifically uh, that as these faculties mature more and more and more, they become powerful, they become powers. And that specifically the faculty of faith It's sometimes said, when it's in its full manifestation, its full power, it manifests as the Brahma Viharas, as the divine abodes of loving kindness, compassion, joy, and equanimity. So here we are with our horses and our cart of self, and they're moving along more and more quickly. And another prop. The cart of self is emptying out. As I said, we're not outside, so I can't give you a visual. And uh, I won't torture Spirit Rock by pouring water all over the floor. They're committed to floor health here. So now we have an empty cart of self, right? And all of it is still engaged. There's still something available here to be functionally used. We can fill it up, we can empty it out, it's pregnant with possibility. The possibility of actually being filled with the awakening qualities of compassion, of loving kindness, of joy, of equanimity, of all of these faculties as powers. It's available to offer itself that way. You know, so when we talk about emptying out the self or thinning out the self or, you know, it's not personal, it doesn't mean that we aren't here. It means that the experience transforms. That's all. So a couple of closing quotes here. First one from Ayakema. To become a master of all these aspects is an ideal, but to practice them is a necessity. And since all of us have these faculties within, there is every reason to cultivate them. One finds oneself a more harmonious and balanced person, with less difficulties, capable of helping others. To develop these five faculties should be a primary object in one's life. The balancing of them needs to be seen as connecting heart with mind. And then lastly from Bhikkhu Bodhi. Born of humble origins in everyday functions of the mind, through the Dhamma, the five faculties acquire a transcendent destiny. When they are developed, and regularly cultivated, says the teacher, they lead to the deathless, are bound for the deathless, culminate in the deathless.
So may that be increasingly so for each one of us. Thank you for your practice. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.